Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze and interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. This is Aaron. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com and you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind the scenes videos and two minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We are about to get into a conversation that Ange and I had um, with the legendary chef and cookbook author, Pierre Cham. He's a Senegal-raised, New York-based chef, author, restaurateur, social entrepreneur, and culinary ambassador. You can also find Chef Cham on Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, uh, Season 7, Episode 6. Um, that's streaming on HBO, but we had such a good time with him and hope that we can welcome him back again to Bitch Talk sometime soon. Let's get into our conversation. I know it's it's been a little uh, rough, probably the last six months for everyone. And now I know that you have a newborn. Is that true? Indeed. Oh, wow. boy. So I really <laughs> thank you so much for getting back to us. Um, of course. You have so many things in your history and your past uh, up till now that we could talk about, I think, for hours. But Chef Pierre, you, you opened up your uh, restaurant in New York um, last February called uh, Taranga, correct? Correct. Uh -huh. Yes. And um, one of the other reasons I, I really wanted to have you on, and I just, I just finished the episode, was that you uh, were featured in uh, Anthony Bourdain um, episode of, what, 2016 or so, and mm -hmm. um, just learned a lot about you. And I thought it, it would be so wonderful to have you on the show and to talk about yourself and to talk about your origin story. Um, and so, if you will, um, can you can you please tell our listeners um, your story from uh, Senegal to New York? From Senegal to New York, well, I was born and raised in Dakar. Dakar is the capital city of Senegal, you know, little coastal, uh, French colonized Senegal. And I was a student in physics and chemistry. The, the year I decided to move to New York City, I mean, I didn't decide to move to New York City, actually. It happened that I was not only a student, but we were involved in student political movement. And uh, our movement was so uh, intense that year that the government decided to shut down the whole university. Actually, the whole school year was shut down. Wow. And uh, we, yeah, it was intense. Uh, and we, we were going to either start over the whole new year, or, or just try to figure out the school system that was better suited for what we wanted. And for me, I found this tiny school in, in Ohio, in Berea, called Baldwin Wallace, and I got an application, and I got admitted, and I came to the U.S. with a student visa and the dream of getting my degree in physics and chemistry. Wow. Right? Yeah. yeah, that sure. sounds normal. Natural yeah. progression of life. Yeah, yeah. You know, exactly. <laughs> well, it you... gets better. It gets better. I arrived in. I decided to visit New York on my way to Ohio. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> because I had a friend who lived here, and uh, I mean, he had just moved to New York a few months before me. But he was like, "Oh, stop by on your way. Can stay here for a couple of weeks, you know, and uh, and then go on your, you know, studies." So, and stop by, 
and uh, he lived in uh, on 50th Street, right by where Times Square is right now, right by there, 50th and Broadway. But it was in the late 80s, so it was nothing like <laughs> what it is right now. Nothing at the time. New York was dealing with the crack. Uh, crack uh, was all over, you know, especially in that area. And you had AIDS, you know, it was a big thing. So lots of drugs and, you know, there was a strip joints everywhere. It was just, you know, not really, it wasn't Dakar. I was coming from Dakar. Dakar was like really this, you know, seaside city, really, mm-hmm. really, really peaceful and nothing like New York. And three days after I arrived in New York, I get robbed. And three, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, no. I, uh, yeah, yeah. In that, in that same room where my friend was staying, you know, we were staying in this room in this really creepy looking hotel, you know, and a hotel where you would see like needles on the floor of like mm. the bathroom mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So, yeah, anyway, so I, I get robbed and I have my return ticket to Senegal or try to figure it out. And, and uh, another friend of a friend was there who was working in a restaurant at the time, a restaurant in the West Village. And he was like, oh, well, our restaurant needs a busboy. Do you want to try to make some money, save some money? I was like, of course, I didn't have any money. I didn't, I never worked before. It was my first job ever. And, uh, wow. and, 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 and figuring out bussing the tables and cleaning them and taking the empty plates in the kitchen and that kind of thing. It was easy enough. But that's where I got my first cultural shock. And because uh, uh, coming from a culture in Senegal where cooking is a gender-based activity, it's like mm. women in the kitchen. And, and here in this kitchen, there's only men in this kitchen and, and mm-hmm. they're doing this amazing food. And, and I'm like completely enthralled of what's happening. And the chef seeing my reaction to the food is like, he thinks I'm like very interested and I'd like to learn. And he's like, you know, if you're interested, I can, you know, take you, give you some shifts, you know, washing dishes like I studied. And then, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be teaching you, I'll be training you from the bottom up. And, and that's how it started for me. 30 years so what, later, I'm still in New York City in the kitchen. <laughs> hey, what wow. happened to Ohio? Ohio, I still, I still don't, I still don't it's, know where. It's still there. It's still there. Don't worry. It's still there. Yeah, you're I fine. Heard, you're fine where you are, I, clearly. I, I heard I didn't miss much here. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, yeah, that's, that's the story. You know, a short story. Of course, in the, in the meantime, you know, I went from dishwasher to eating vegetables and, and uh, lots of those. And, and then from there to Garde Manger, working on the salad station. And the chef mm-hmm. was really, really became a mentor. You know, he loved working with me because, you know, I was working hard. I needed to get out of this situation. And, you know, I was working, piling the hours as much possible because I needed to save money, naively thinking that Ohio was the, bla- the place to be. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and and I, I, you know, I got really lucky because I, I got a chef who, who had studied in France and who, who, who liked to practice his French with me. So that was great. You know, he was spending time practicing his French with me, you know, mm-hmm. telling me which books I should be reading, you know, and really like, you know, he, he you know, he, he gave me the love of food. And, you know, and I should say the love was already there because, you know, coming from a food culture, Senegal is a, is a very rich food culture. You know, it's like, you know, especially Dakar, which is a, a hub 
like so many, you know, we, we located in the most Western coast of West Africa. So it became a natural hub, different cultures came. And when those cultures mixes, there's always like great food that comes out of it. So, you know, we were colonized by the French, but then you had the Portuguese on one side in the South where my parents are from. And you had, uh, we have a great Vietnamese community because of the same colonial past with the French, you know, and each of those cultures, not to mention the neighboring countries, each of them bringing their, their, their food culture. And so we grew up in that environment. We grew up with our mothers cooking fresh food on a daily basis because that's the way it is there, you know, and they go to the market every day. And when you eat fish, which is pretty much every day or every other day, it's like the fish was caught today mm. or yesterday you know you know the chicken is like roaming in your backyard before <laughs> right before getting into the to the bowl you know mm. so so you know that's that's a really good food culture flavors are, are intense are great you know fermentation is a big part of our cuisine so there's so much that our cuisine had you know so i was i was you know i was a foodie without knowing it you know and and <laughs> mm. and, 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 and now i'm here in this kitchen learning a whole different style of cuisine you know and the chef is really focusing on me and 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 I'm loving it and with my chemistry background too that right. helped because because knowing what was happening the reaction in the kitchen are all chemistry you know so it's just mm -hmm. really it uh, it's another you know another addition to to my to, to my um, to this experience as I was saying et voila <laughs> <laughs> And here you are. <laughs> yeah. I, and wow, here I am. What a, what a beautiful story. And I, I have so many reactions to it. I have like mm -hmm. 10, th 10 things I want to say. I'll try, yeah. to, I'll try to consolidate. But first of all, I love how you talk about, we, we talk about the immigrant story a lot. Uh, and I think it's, it's really beautiful that you, you said, you know, you come from the small town in Senegal that was peaceful and nonviolent. And then you come to the U.S. and New York could just kind of smacks you in the face, you know, because um, we, we often as a country look at other places and they're like, Oh God, we're, we're off so much better than them. Like, it's just not true across <laughs> everywhere in every country there's beauty and there's peace and, and wonderful people and great food. So that was my first point. Um, the, the, <laughs> the second reaction I had was we also talk about just serendipity life handing you what was meant to be and making the most out of a, a messed up situation. And this robbery that happens three days into being in New York changed your entire life and now look at the movement that you're part of so i'm grateful to this robber and i hope that you know <laughs> their life turn took a turn for the better as well but you know look at where you are today that was yeah. my second thought and then third <laughs> women in the kitchen and, and and we're so used to in the states a kitchen being i i worked in restaurants a kitchen is a man's world mm. in the states uh -huh, uh -huh, it's not yeah. true that's not true not everywhere else in the world like it, it at least it should be 50 50 if we want to make it you know true to yeah. our instinct yeah. as as humans but um yeah so thank you for bringing up those those three really powerful points for me and and you run really successful restaurants both in nigeria senegal and the u.s so what is the difference for you in, in how you run the restaurants and, and, and being um, the head of, of them in three completely different countries? Uh, well, the difference is uh, diff the, the, the style is, is different. You know, in, in Lagos, that was a restaurant where I, it was actually a, a, a first experience for me working in Africa itself as a chef. You know, I never, I never had done that. I was coming from the U.S. with, you know, my, my, reputation in my background and and the, the investors of that restaurant wanted to me to bring this kind of cuisine you know I was really you know becoming a champion of presenting African food West African food in particular 
And and the, the, the irony is in, in cities in Africa like Lagos and Dakar and, and Abidjan, the big cities, most of the time, Johannesburg, whatever, uh, most of the time, you know, the, the best addresses, the best areas, you don't see African restaurants, you don't see African food. You would mm -hmm. see like, you know, everything as French, Italian, Japanese, Chinese, whatever. And the African restaurants are relegated to, you know, the hood most of the time in Dakar, that's in the hood. So, so in Lagos, that was an, ex an experience, you know, experiment because these guys really had this amazing location. They were on Victoria Island, which is like the, you know, the, the, the posh area of, of Lagos. And they said, you know, we want you to do a menu, which is African, you know, using our ingredients, using our flavors. And, and that was so exciting. And that's why I took this, this thing, I, because it was so exciting. That was the first, for me, it was not, you don't see it, like I say, you don't see it in, in Africa, not even in Senegal before, before then. And, and that was such a hit because we were just bringing those flavors from, from memories. You know, most of these are like not even coded, those recipes. So we had to like re, 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 reinvent them, revisit that cuisine, and, but make it, you know, so that it, it, uh, it fits in that Porsche area of Lagos. And that became this destination. And even today, like, you know, like six years later, not by Alara, it's like a reference in Lagos. It's a destination and you have the locals who come because they can connect with it. They're like, you know, this is their, you know, it's in their DNA. That's the food that, you know, the flavor that they know. And the, and the, the expatriates also flock to it because that's the food they come to experience, to discover, mm. you know, it's not mm -hmm. like, you know, they grew up eating all the other things that those cities are offering, you know, they ate Italian, French, whatever, you know, they come to Africa and they want to experience African food. And that's basically the, the, the way I presented it in Lagos. And, uh, and, and it was, you know, it was, it was really an enrich, a rich experience for me. So in Dakar, it was different because I was hired by the Pullman Hotel. The Pullman is like a, a hotel chain and they have a, a, a big hotel in Dakar. And it was similar in a way that they, they wanted me to do something with African ingredients, you know, and you know, I became uh, the person they would go to when they want African food, you know, and I did the same thing with, with, with local Senegalese ingredients, taking Senegalese traditional recipes and bringing them in this hotel that's like this amazing hotel that's like a five-star hotel in Dakar. And those five-star hotels were similar, doing the same thing as the, the restaurants. They were always serving, you know, European dishes, you know, because their clientele were mostly Europeans, of course, the tourists and, and the business people. And they were serving that, even importing the ingredients. I mean, simple stuff was like, you know, I mean, everything was imported from, from Europe. It was really like something that, that bothered me so much, so much, so much. I mean, I, I had a similar experience a few years ago. I did. A, I was invited to do a dinner in in Kinshasa. That was in the like in in Congo, in the central of Africa. Mm. And and before coming, I had to send a list of ingredients to the chef over there. And the chef, of, of course, was European. You know, like most of the time is the case. And that chef couldn't even get those ingredients. When I arrived, the ingredients he had ordered were all coming from Belgium, from Brussels, you know, and it's like, oh, the rest of the ingredients are going to come for the next flight and whatever. And I'm like, 
have you been to the market here? And he had never been to the market because, you know, oh. he was, and, and I took him to the market. I mean, I was new to that country. I'd never been, but I, you know, markets are amazing everywhere, especially mm -hmm. in Africa. And, and I took him there and the guy was so happy because he was like, you know, this discovering things that he had never seen before. And, and just all of this to say, you know, um, using local ingredients was, was a, a, a key to my cuisine and using local African ingredients was something that chefs oftentimes looked down upon or, or didn't even know. And, uh, and forget, forget in New York, you know, in Africa itself, they wouldn't even give it a chance. So that's, um, that's, that's, those are the experiences I had with uh, playing with that food. When I came to New York and I, I did my restaurant, Teranga, before my restaurant, Teranga, actually, I had uh, two other restaurants in Brooklyn. And all the time was the idea was to, to bring this cuisine because I, was, I couldn't believe I was living in the food capital of the world. And African food wasn't like present, you know, represented, you know, it was like this was something that uh, that became a motivation. And I saw this as an opportunity and, and, and the rest is history, really. So I'm not sure I answered your question, but I, <laughs> that's basically how, how I got to this. Yeah, I was going to ask you if we could rewind a little bit too. When you when you came to the states and you were in New York, was it hard for you to find good Senegalese West African food? <laughs> it, it, it was hard. It was hard, and uh, in the beginning, before I before I figured out how it how you not know, there was there was a community, there was a Senegalese community, and apparently, you know, there has been happening. But the the women in that community were cooking in there small apartment or even in that hotel because the hotel we stayed in was like a, a immigrants and, and and welfare hotel together in the same thing because it was really cheap but uh women managed to turn some of those rooms into kitchen and <laughs> they would and they would cook you know and then put it in bowls and go around the rooms and sell them you know like put it and 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 that's how we would get the flavors from home if, wow. and, and, and every day there was like one dish, you know, they would prepare, you know, either the yasa or today's chibujan. I mean, all that, those are like the, the national dishes. And that's thanks to them that we survived. I survived, you know, when I, when I first arrived and I first tasted the food that I could afford, I couldn't deal with it. You know, it was like, ah, oh, man, it's, there was no, it was, no taste. no taste. <laughs> yeah. No taste. No taste. Yeah. No soul. No nothing. No yeah. flavor. You know. And then that's uh, you know, I, I considered going back home. You know, when I saw the food, I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm well, I'm here. glad you didn't go to Ohio. No, no shade, but I mean, the food in New York has to be a little, you know, more diverse than, than Ohio. Yeah. So you were even in you. one of the better cities for diverse types of food. <laughs> I, just saying. I heard. I heard. <laughs> Well, I love you. And you even, uh, I think it's on your website. It says sharing food is an act of love. And mm -hmm. that's uh, something that you bring to your, to your restaurants and to your style of, of cuisine. Um, I, I, I just, I really appreciate not only that you're bringing this types of food to, to us and making it available, but all of the, the work that you do outside of the restaurant to make sure that your community back home and the, the, the world as a whole, you know, people have more access to selling 
um, selling these types of food and, and, and making a living from their own land and not having to leave. You know, you, you talk a lot about how people go to big cities to try to make money where, no, you're, you should be able to make money right where you are. You know, you have all these resources. You're really good at what you do. You just need a platform. Um, so That's can it. you talk, talk a little bit about, uh, is it Yolele Foods, mm -hmm. Yolele the, Foods the company Yolele. that you started? I see you have some represented back there. Some, yeah. Uh, <laughs> some, uh, yeah the um, Fonio. So, the Fonio, yeah. Fonio. yeah, yeah. I, want to, I want to get into Fonio as well. But yeah, can yeah. you talk about starting Yolele and, and why that was so important to you? Yeah, so it was, a, it was really, it came organically, really. You know, like I said, I was in this city and I'm like, where's my food? And I'm like, I will bring it. It's not here. So I'm bringing mm. it. And, and as I'm doing that, there's a process, you know, and I got to a point where I wanted to reach a wider audience. And I, you know, I was like, maybe I write a cookbook and I'm writing a cookbook and writing this cookbook, my first cookbook, I realized that many of the ingredients are not accessible. So uh, how do I get, make these ingredients accessible? You know, because you have to write the source page, you know, and the reader has to go to the source page and, and get the ingredients. So um, I, so the idea started to, to uh, like germinate on me to, that I could figure out, a, I, I should figure out a way to, to get these ingredients accessible to my readers at least. And uh, the, it's really on my second cookbook when I, the, the second cookbook was more about in, introducing the readers to the source of the food that I was cooking. The first cookbook was about the, where my food is coming from, where my inspiration is coming from. And I took the reader with a photographer. We went to Senegal and spent time with my mother and my aunts in the village. You know, all mm -hmm. the, you know that, that book was a tribute to the women of my family and to the women of Africa in general, because, you know, and you'll see through the book, you see beautiful portraits of like, uh, of women, you know, the way they dressed naturally, you know, it's all colorful. And, and then you see them in the kitchen. And then the next cookbook, now I want to go to uh, deeper to the source of the food. So I want to meet the producers and the farmers and the fishermen and all that. So I'm traveling around the country with a photographer and we're spending time with those producers and each of them uh, is presented to the to the, the readers, you know, their stories, their, their challenges. The fisherman is talking about the overfishing that's happening right now. And he's mm -hmm. coming from a family of fishermen, but he doesn't want his son to become a fisherman because there's nothing to get from mm -hmm. the fish, the water anymore. It's so sad. It's, mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, after that chapter, I talk about the recipes with fish, you know, and in Senegal uh, and the imagined recipes as well. And then I'm in this part of Senegal that's in the northeastern region, uh, southeastern region, very uh, remote area. And I spend time with this woman who runs this cooperative, the woman, and, and they, they're processing fonio and, and they, you know, and they talk about how important this grain is for them and in their culture and how fonio is the grain that they offer to the guest of honor, you know, they, it's a grain that, you know, it's been in their culture, in their community for generations, you know, it's the, you know, they have so many beliefs around the grain and I'm fascinated by the grain, you know, it's like, it's, and, and you eat it, it's really this most delicate grain. They call it the, the, the best tasting grain ever, you know, and it really is so delicious and delicate and, and, and versatile. And I'm like, as a chef, I'm like, wow, this grain is like, would do great in, in my restaurant, you know, it's like, I should figure out a way to bring this grain. And the more I study the grain, the more I realize that it's a grain that, um, you know, that has 
so many properties, but we'll talk more about Fonio later. So this is how I decided to, to figure out a way to, to bring these ingredients, you know, and I'm like, the way to do it is to start a company that will focus on that. And that's how Yolele came to be. Yolele, I teamed up with my business partner, Philippe Tevro, who's also a veteran in the food industry, who had been working with, uh, back in the days with Dean and DeLuca in New York, and they turned it into, yeah, voila. So he has, a, he has much experience into into ingredients and and and, and imports so we we had this, this team he used to come to my restaurant back in uh, brooklyn and uh, and we became friends and he realized what i was trying to do and we decided to join forces and there is yolele this company that works with farmers you know bring and, and open markets for their for their products because that's the, the the thing i realized is those those regions where the farmers are they have these amazing products like Fonio, but they are still very poor and depleted. And it's like, I mean, immigration is big there because all the, the young youth is gone. They don't have opportunities. They're looking for work at, in other places. They try to get to Europe. I mean, in, in drastic, dramatic ways, you know, they take dugout boats, you know, dugout fishermen, fish, fishermen boats, and they, they, they try to cross the water from Senegal to Spain. Wow. And, and it's a tragedy that's been happening for a couple of decades now. And it's happening still right now. And the, apparently the numbers are crazy. 2,000 plus people die every year in the drowned in the water. Wow. And, and, and half of them make it, the other half don't make it. And it's right. still worth it for them. And they still try to go and they still, you know, and, and I'm like, if we figure out a way to, to, to make them stay, you know, create opportunities, because that's all they want. They're hard workers. They, they, I mean, they risk their lives to go find work right. elsewhere, you know. So, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's how Yolele decided to, to be part of the solution. We, we, we work with farmers. We bring, you know, uh, we open market, equitable markets for those, uh, for those grains, for those products, for those crops, you know, and... Uh, and, and it brings economic prosperity. And it does more than economic prosperity because those crop, crops are also great for the environment. So it restores the soil and there's like, you know, it for here, the nutrition is, 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 is important too because those grains are very nutritious. So that helps us here in the West to diversify our diet because we have such a limited diet and, and that's, that's terrible for our health. So, yeah. so yeah, so, yeah, so, so that's, uh, you know, Yolele was working in, in finding solutions and it turns out it, it brought uh, many other benefits to it, you know, and, and grains that checks all the boxes like Fonio. <laughs> yeah, I, and I promise we'll talk about Fonio in a minute because the first time I heard about it was when I saw you at Moad. And I'm like, what is this grain he's talking about? I've never <laughs> heard of it. How, how, can I, how can I not hear of it? I love food. Um, but, um, you know, I reading about you and seeing you in person and then seeing you on TV, you just, ha- you're, you're really a giver. And I want to know, has that always been a part of your practice in life? Um, I think it's cultural. I think it's cultural mm-hmm. because, um, you know, in, I come from a society where, um, as a matter of fact, it's the name of my restaurant, Teranga, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the Teranga, it means uh, hospitality in, in a sense, you know, it's a hospitality and, and it, but in the whole uh, scope of it, you know, and it really is giving, you know, because giving to the, the, the guest and that guest, the, the most important guest is the one that's unexpected. 
and 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 we and we have this this belief it's really even a superstition that the 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 more you give the the more you receive in in let me explain that you know it's like when you come to a house in senegal even if you're not expected they will always offer you something to eat you know at the most a a homemade drink but some something eats when there's it's food time they'll say please come and eat and and you cannot refuse because if you refuse it's like um you're refusing to give them the blessing that you're bringing to them in reality when you come and eat that food you are giving them a blessing and they are guaranteed that they will always have food to serve so that's this this superstition that we have and and uh, so and it's so ingrained in us our most important value is teranga actually that's like that value of sharing of giving of because when we believe that the more we give the more we receive you know that's really giving is receiving it's a, so it's a, it's an interesting concept uh, and uh, you know i try to explain it you know sometimes it's kind of it's kind of blurry to catch the the meaning of it but it's a really a society where um the the your wealth is not seen by how much you have but by how much you give you know that's how you they they see how rich you are or how that's how you show how rich you are you know not how much you have in your bank account and not how much assets you have but how generous you are and uh, and you can be uh materially poor but be very rich because you mm-hmm. you 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 are generous in giving so i guess you know that's probably where it comes from mm. i love that yeah so just as a hypothetical if we ended up at your house by accident one day we could potentially get fed is what you're saying oh uh, you will get fed <laughs> just accidentally like oh chef what are you doing here yeah <laughs> you <laughs> you will definitely get fed okay. and, and you know again even if you're not hungry the 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 rule wants you to to take a spoonful or a handful because we eat with our hands traditionally too mm-hmm. yes. so, so, so so take a handful and and just to give the blessing back and say okay i'm not hungry but there there's your blessing i love it we're always hungry that's never yeah. the problem <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. i can Lovely. i can answer for the both of us yeah <laughs> uh, 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 great to turn uh, quickly to to Fonio, I, I love the name too. It's like the most beautifully named yes, grain, grain in the world. <laughs> yeah. But what you know, I'm ashamed that I haven't tried it yet either. But I will quickly get on that. Um, you know, especially after reading up on it. But um, it kind of reminds me of its story. Reminds me of quinoa, and I would love for you to just talk about you know because I, I first had quinoa in, in South America before it got big here, and then all of a sudden it blew up, and now you know the. It's everywhere. Um, it's everywhere and now the Peruvian and Bolivian indigenous people can't even afford their own, mm. you know, staple food. So mm. how did you use the story of of quinoa as basically as like a cautionary tale for Fonio? Yeah, absolutely. It's a cautionary tale for Fonio for for many ways. Uh for us what we try to avoid is the boom that happened to quinoa and that boom was the that a boom is always followed by a bust. and that's what happened to the farmers in 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 Peru and Chile the bust created a crazy market frenzy and and the price went all over the place and 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 there was no control on the price anymore so the farmers couldn't get what they wanted what they deserved there wasn't an equitable market anymore mm-hmm. and in, in so we we avoiding the boom by making sure the demand is really followed going in harmony with the supply and we, and we are working with farmers 
as of, as of now, actually, we're working with farmers in, on, research, on the research side. We are working, working with farmers on the processing side because we, by improving the processing, we turn the losses. The, the furniture processing at this stage has like close to 40% of loss because it's a, it's a tiny grain, you know, it's a tiny grain that has a skin that needs to be removed because, before it becomes food. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the way it's done right now, I mean, traditionally it was done with a mortar and pestle to, to remove the skin <laughs> and it would, it would take like, yeah, a, a, for an, an hour of processing to get one kilo of fonio. Wow. And, and uh, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was the hard work. And, um, and now it's, uh, there's a mechanization, but there's still lots of uh, manual labor. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's still uh, lots of waste, lots of losses. And, and and we we are working with farmers to and with with uh, uh, manufacturers to develop equipment that will remove the waste. It's removing the waste so that we have instead of having this forty percent loss, we don't have the loss anymore. So the production is in, improved. So we have forty percent surplus of fonio in the mm. market with, without even having to to add more to the agriculture. But in addition to that, we're working to far, with farmers to 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 change the way they've been growing fonio because fonio is so easy to grow. It's difficult to process, but it's easy to grow. And farmers, all they have to do is, and that's what they do. They just throw the fonio, like the seeds. When mm. the first when the first rain comes, they throw the seed without barely working the soil. So the soil is barely worked. You know, that's that's really mm. you know a, a, a grain that's they they nickname it the lazy farmer's crop. As, by the way. <laughs> 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 that's, that's that's how easy it is you, you just throw the seeds and you wait two months because it grows really fast too wow. it starts wow. growing it's, it starts growing in two months so it's very very important that aspect i'll talk about that too but but two months and then you come and harvest and harvest is guarantee regardless of how much rain it's been because that's a grain that's resilient and 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 really great for the planet so so by by doing working with researchers we found out that Growing fonio in rows could almost double the production instead of throwing it the way they've been throwing, you know. And mm-hmm. and, and we and we training the farmers at, at doing that. You know, that's that's one another way for us to improve the production, so that the, the we don't get a bust. That for the, and the farmers will always be ready to answer the demand as fonio demands is growing. So and and and, and more so we're organizing a network of farmers. We started with Senegal, but now we have fonio coming from Mali, from Togo, from Burkina oh. Faso soon and from Ghana. So it's uh, and it's gonna grow because we have the whole region called the Sahel, which is south of the Sahara, which mm. is a, a region that's perfect for growing fonio and not much else can grow there because it's arid, you know, it's mm-hmm. the desert. But but fonio grows there, and fonio, in addition to growing there, fonio has deep roots, so it helps to regenerate the soil. The topsoil is being regenerated, so so growing fonio is also another way to mitigate climate change because it slows the desertification, and 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 so mm. that's a, you know that's the the kind of thing we we are doing to to protect the farmers. And one more thing we're doing at a polit- political level is a little more complex, but we're working with organization to even. Uh, secure the name Fonio for the region. Oh, what, yeah, yeah, that's important. Yeah, yeah. Mm. very, very important because quinoa now quinoa is grown in Montana and in and in other parts of the world, and they call it quinoa. And the farmers in Peru and Chile and uh, 
don't have them, don't own that name. So that's a, that's another thing that we we are doing. So there's many lessons that we mm-hmm. learn from the quinoa, and we, mm-hmm. we we're working on wow implementing them. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a super grain. It's kind of it. I, I just don't understand how we. I mean, I do understand why we don't have it now. Um, but I'm glad you're you're spearheading the Fonio um, campaign for the world. <laughs> I, I'm so happy that you're the face of Fonio. <laughs> <laughs> um, we should probably uh, wrap up soon because I realize we are going over our time with you. Unfortunately, oh, I'm sorry. So much. No, but no, you're, it's, you're, it's, it's such so a good. delight. Yeah, you're such a delight to listen to and hear your story. But um, before we wrap up, a couple of things. Um, what have you been doing for the last six months um, while we've all been in quarantine? What's, what's making you happy and bringing you joy? And um, I also want to know how your restaurant's doing in New York right now. Well, for the first, last six months, actually the last two months, I just had a baby. Right, a baby yeah. Girl. <laughs> and, uh, congratulations. And, <laughs> and, and, she, and she brings me so much joy. I mean, Naya is like, a, like just pure joy. She wakes up and she smiles and, and the world is perfect regardless mm-hmm. of what's happening out there. And, uh, and that's, 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 that's the part, that's the good part. You know, the restaurants, you know, Teranga has been, uh, luckily we stayed open. Luckily, wow. because uh, for yeah, we were able to to turn into we 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 uptown. We we our neighbors are hospitals, and we became first responders, uh, for serving food for first responders. That's how it first started, mm-hmm. and and it re- it was really successful. Actually, we even had prof- got profiled on on ABC doing that. And uh, and and next thing we realized that you know the first responders, I mean, it's great to to do what we're doing with them. But it's not like they're hungry, really. And but but in Harlem, where we are, there are shelters where kids were going to school, and they were depending on this food from the school to 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 to, to get you know to right. be nourished. And mm-hmm. they the schools were schools being closed. There was a challenge, so we worked with uh, we partnered with an organization called Harlem Grown, doing a beautiful job there. And we we started feeding those shelters, the kids in those shelters. So that that kept us going at, with the restaurant, and uh, and obviously we were doing uh, deliveries and takeouts. And we expanded our delivery and takeout zone, which was uh, also very helpful. We had uh, much support from the community, and instead of just delivering in in Harlem, we started even taking our food to Brooklyn. You know, we we doing events like we recently did a pop up two weeks ago with. Um, uh Soho 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 House, the oh, one in mm-hmm. Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And and now we're serving some of our products in Soho House. So, you know, it's we're just trying to reinvent ourselves in this new situation where the pandemic has put our industry in like in a in a tough spot. So yeah. so there, you know, we try to see that as an opportunity more than anything else. So, you know, it's it's is is there you know there's yeah. some light so yeah. we're doing we're doing those things you know i've i'm starting uh, to work with a distribution company cook unity so my food can be served in the northeastern region now packaged and, and served in northeastern region including for your products as well okay so, good. <laughs> so look, forward, yes. look yes. forward to that at the end of this month we'll start distributing so that's uh, that's one of the things we've been doing 
Bring a restaurant out here, chef. Please, yes, we need you on the west side. Yeah. Well, I'm in the west on the west side right now, and this is uh, something I'm looking into. You know, it looks like there's lots of opportunity too. So I will yeah. let you know. Please do, chef. And then um, the last thing: where can people find you on, on the internet? And and where can people find Fonio? Fonio, yes. So so yolele.com, yolele, Y-O-L-E-L-E.com is the, the, the place to get Fonio online. We are on, distributed in all the Whole Foods in America, so you can find it at Whole Foods. Uh, Amazon, of course, you can find everything at Amazon. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, Thrive Market. There are so many uh, retailers. Uh, Berkeley Bowl now is... Uh, is uh, oh, I love Berkeley Bowl, uh, yes. There we go. Berkeley yeah. Bowl is distributing our phone. And, and, <laughs> and many more. So, so if you go on yourlele.com, you'll see the, you have more information on how to get phone. Uh, PRCAM.com is my uh, website as well, so that can give you information about Yolele and about the restaurant. And uh, so, so that's uh, that's where to find me. And online and uh, on social media at Chef PRCAM on Instagram, I'm there. <laughs> well, I, I thank you so much for being on our show. And it was such a delight. I knew it was going to be and I was really looking forward to this. So Chef Cham, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks so for nice to me. talk to you. Yeah. I like what? It was a pleasure. And stop oh. by my home and I'll cook for you. Yes. <laughs> don't, you don't have to tell her twice, <laughs> Chef. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Take care. You're welcome. Take care. Have a good evening. And you. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions.